Hello listeners and welcome to this special bonus episode of Keep Talking podcast from the Revelation Station. Uh, this is a follow-on from our previous episode, which was uh, our guide to Red Dwarf. And this is an interview that was recorded by Gary. Hello, Gary. Hello, Simon. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. So tell us a little bit about this interview. What is it? Okay, so, well, back in uh, 1992, I was uh, with some friends running a science fiction and fantasy group called Octarine. And we produced a little magazine for that. And in that magazine, apart from various articles and things, occasionally we would have an interview. Um, this would be either with uh, authors or, you know, actors, anybody who could get an interview from, anybody who would listen to us for a start. Mm -hmm. and, anybody uh, who desperately not for publicity. Exactly. Anybody who desperately <laughs> needed publicity. So um, back in 92, I was about to attend a Red Dwarf convention in Northampton. And I wrote to the people running it and asked if they would kindly speak to Rob and Doug and say, um, you know, if we could do a small interview with them. They were very, very kind and after they did a set on stage, um, invited us back to a little room around the back where we could do a small interview with them. And what you're about to hear is the interview that myself and Paul Clough, who was also a member of uh, the Octarine Committee, he was uh, holding the microphone and working the tape deck, so he was the technical guy. Um, we did this interview. I wrote the questions, and we sat down with Rob and Doug and recorded the following interview. Excellent. So just to clarify, that's Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, creators of Red Dwarf, and it's an exclusive, unheard interview from the archives of Octarine. Correct, yeah. <laughs> Which is how, how we met, in fact. It is, yes. Uh, I, I got you drunk and uh, rather than seduce you, thought, hey, this guy could help me write it as well. <laughs> and I did. Yeah, and you're a much better writer than you were a sexual did. partner. Mm, thanks. Mm. Uh, and I wasn't that good a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, presenting here for your delight and edification is uh, the complete interview, uncut. Um, sound quality is not brilliant. It's very, very listenable. I've cleaned up as much as I can, but bearing in mind it was recorded on a tape player in 1992, so it's 28 years old. With a handheld microphone. Yeah, this is embryonic me. So, please enjoy this interview, and we'll have a regular scheduled episode coming out onto your feeds very, very soon after. Take care. We started with Son of Cliche. You started doing that back in when? 1982? Uh, I couldn't tell. The late you. Cambrian age, it was. Yeah, yeah. Was it 82? Was it? Um, I think it was somewhere around. Yeah, it could well be, yes. Eight, no, 80, 80, 81 it was. Right. Did you enjoy doing Son of Cliche? Oh, yeah, it was tremendous fun. Yeah, the first uh, series we did. Um, that in in yeah, Manchester. in Manchester, and uh, that was our first kind of uh, sense of uh, producing because the producer went missing. He went down to London, didn't he, and left us do it. And uh, it was really quite terrifying. And we were up to kind of editing at two o'clock in the morning, and you know, like the edit was supposed to finish at eight. So we didn't what we were doing. So yeah, it was great fun. And then we radio is great mm -hmm. fun, and it's a real um, on my soapbox. It's a real pisser that radio two has stopped. They've stopped doing scripted comedy, I've just heard. They can't afford it anymore, which is... I think writers need somewhere to make mistakes cheaply in the public eye, and that's what radio does. Radio 2 was a glorious, yeah. <laughs> and full, yeah. yeah. Did you... I mean, you worked on there with um, Chris Barry, um, Nick Wilton and Nick Malone. Mm. 
did you did you enjoy working with those three people? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. We did. Um, I mean, it was you know, well, yes. It was it was purely accidental though that we had this connection with Chris Barry. I mean, we always we met him first on a Carrots Lib election special in uh, the uh, the second Tory victory, I think. Yeah, that's right, and we wrote a Robin, uh, Robin Day monologue for him, and that was kind of like the last thing in the show, and he kind of became a... He became a star overnight, and then people forgot about him, didn't they? Yeah. He kind of, yeah. So he was in all the papers, and he was huge, kind of... So we had him on sort of cliche, and then we got him onto Carrots Lib. Well, or, or, I don't know... That, that's true, but we work with them on Carousel, and every time since then, it's always been kind of an accident that we've we've cast him. Mm. We uh, he actually we sort of he was on Spitting Image before we were, and uh, when he auditioned for uh, Rimmer, we thought he had no chance, frankly, because we we'd seen him as an impressionist, and uh, we did such a, a powerful uh, interview, uh, such a powerful what do you call it, audition. That we uh, we decided to uh, go with it. Did you have Did you have any idea about casting him when you were looking at casting Red Dwarf? She worked with him on uh, on Dave Holland's Space Cadet. He played Hab, didn't he? The, the, I think, in all honesty, um, and in all deference to Chris, uh, we only we only actually saw him for the Red Dwarf interviews because we shared the same agent. And we felt embarrassed about saying no, we don't want to see him. And then he came up and he did a terrific audition, didn't he? Mm -hmm. And uh, and we we wound up with him. Some of cliche included a, a lot of standard run of the mill. Uh, well, not, sorry, not run of the mill. I mean, you included a lot of repetitive um, uh, sets each week. You had uh, Captain Invisible, and uh, that was more a thing from. Uh, when we moved down to London, uh, and uh, Jeffrey Perkins, actually, who was a producer there, said that you had to get recurring uh, sketch formats because people would just turn on the radio and there wouldn't be anything to identify with. We felt it was very cheap, but ultimately it proved to be absolutely right. Uh, and in the first series, it was there was no repetition, no recurring characters, there was just a load of sketches. Murder to write. Yeah, very difficult to write. Uh, whereas it's so much easier when you get something like Captain Invisible or SL Spanish Detective to go back and improve them and, and bring back the recurring characters. Uh, and it was, you know, following that advice, really, he said that would make the difference between whether it was a, a hit or a miss, and it was, it proved, it was proved right. Was there anything like the Grumble Weeds as well? Because that was definitely... Well, we, yeah. I, I think that's why we rebelled against doing yeah, it. Yeah, because, because the Grumble Weeds kind of had like three jokes. <laughs> and that was it. And it was just They're the same. Yeah, no, sure. Sure, and they were, but it's like every show is the same. Yeah, so the, the first show of yeah. the series is always the funniest. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Captain Invisible was great radio. Have you ever thought of turning it to a television series? <laughs> they tried I to do it, didn't yeah. they? Um, it, on camera, again, they tried to do it. Uh, and we weren't really around, and they just shot this stuff. It was just, you know, it didn't work. I mean, cause well, oh, look, there he is. The <laughs> it just didn't, it was terrible. They can make a great uh, comic strip. Yeah. Uh, I really like Captain Invisible. I think it was the funniest thing on uh, on on Christian. I also we keep on threatening to do Asso Spanish Detective as a TV wasn't series. It, wasn't that the first script? Wasn't that one of the first scripts you sent to the BBC for a series? Asso. No, we contemplated doing it, and uh, we actually have tried to turn it into a, a script. 
Sure, yeah. No, the first thing we saw was about two uh, thing called Big Time, about two private detectives. Mm. While we were at uh, university. What does that involve? What did the script involve? Yeah, it seven jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's been a bit sick counter. I think it was one joke, wasn't it? <laughs> Um, yeah, we spent the best part of seven months writing this thing, absolutely convinced it would be accepted. Uh, so much so that we didn't get any work at all at the university uh, and got kicked out. And the script got rejected all within a fortnight. And so, like, going home to parents and going, yes, what well, bad news. <laughs> um, we got kicked out, but uh, the good news is we've uh, I've decided I want to be a script writer with Rob, and uh, that's what we're going to do. How did you first get involved in writing for Radio? Well, we uh, we tried another TV script called uh, I can't remember what it was called. It was about students uh, sharing a flat. Um, no, this was before that. And uh, nothing like freshers then. No, it wasn't. It wasn't funny. And uh, <laughs> and we um, we then decided that. The, the, We'd heard that it would it would be easy to get into radio, and we thought, oh, well, we'll give that a shot. And, uh, we wrote a script called Hot Potatoes. That was Hot Potatoes, which was, uh, did have some jokes in it, uh, but wasn't. I mean, it wouldn't have. I don't think it would have made it, but it got us attention and uh, from Ted Taylor Turner. Yeah, Ted Taylor. Um, who then referred us back to a producer up in Manchester called Bob Oliver Rogers, who had us in. We went to our first meeting at the BBC, I remember, in our wide lapel flared suits, and we were only, the only people in the BBC wearing suits. It was really humiliating. <laughs> and he took us out for a curry and uh, uh, and encouraged us to uh, to, to write. And we, we sent him a, a sitcom which, which he liked, uh, and eventually we got offered a, a year's commission uh, as, as in-house writers at the Beeb. They had this thing going, Jimmy Mulville and Guy Jenkins had it the year before us, um, where they pay you nothing for a year. <laughs> but no, we, were, we shared a contract. I mean, it was pitiful at the start. But £36 a week. £36 a week. It was just slightly above the dole. And... Uh, that's how we started, and we, we, we considered ourselves professional writers, even though we were starving, <laughs> not paying rent. And uh, but we were in, and uh, that's how we started writing for radio. And you started off in television, then? No, we started off attempting television, and then gave that up as a bad job because we couldn't because the script was rejected. I mean, we had this thing. We thought uh, that we'd send off a script. And uh, the BBC would send around a big white limousine and a fact check and drive us immediately. For real, for real, that's what Television centre to, to, to start yeah. negotiations. Yeah. I expected a big car to roll up outside and the man from the BBC to go, quick, get in, we've got to take you to the BBC. Because to make this into a TV series. No, he got was a letter telling you to sort off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said the dialogue yeah. flowed smoothly, but yeah. Was, and I think if I. If I'd known then, actually, uh, the, the truth of the matter, I'd have, I'd have packed it in and gone back to university. It was because uh, it took us ten years to get our own series on television, as it happened. From that point, mm -hmm. you went on from doing sort of cliche. I've got no idea what it did between then and Spitting Image. What, did uh, you do much well, the, the actual order was. Um, 
the very first thing we wrote was a, a sketch show for new writers called Comedy First. Uh, and then we wrote a couple of really, really extraordinarily bad sitcoms. Uh, one was called Wrinkles and one was called Wally Who. And then we did lots of writing for just about everyone who passed through. Bernie uh, Clifton, Bob Munkhouse, Ken Doyle, <laughs> Little and Large, everybody. Um, Grumbleweeds. Uh, and then we got Son of Cliché, because we said we want to be allowed to do our own thing, because we're sick of doing all this stuff for other people. Uh, and and <clears throat> Richard still got her Son of Cliché, and he was doing a show up in Scotland called Kick Up the 80s. 80s, and that was the first TV we got. Uh, we did a couple of sketches, a chalk outline sketch was the very first sketch that we had on TV. Uh, and a parody of uh, the, those epilogues on American Cop Theories on the go, when, you know, when they wrap up the whole thing. Mm. Uh, but those were the first two sketches that we had on, and then because of that, because Tracy Ullman was in that, when she went down to London to do Three of a Kind, she recommended that we come and write for that. And Paul Jackson, who was then producer, uh, uh, rang up and said, would you like to do this? And we said, yeah. Uh, and he said, oh, unfortunately, I haven't got any money. And we said, well, ring up when you have, because uh, we're not doing it, if, you know, because we've, we've written very many sketch shows and uh, radio shows, and so we're not doing it for free. And so he didn't come back until the second series, which is, and we, we wrote, wrote, wrote uh, some stuff on the second series. And then when he did the character lip series, he said, why don't you come down to London and, and, and work on that? And so we, we moved down and got a flight in Chiswick and sort of on the Friday and started writing for the show on the Saturday, and we've been down there ever since. Mm. Did you enjoy doing spitting image? Enjoy is a weird word for spitting image, yeah. <laughs> uh, we used to get in at five in the morning and work a seven day week. It. Uh, it was extraordinarily, it was kind of quite fun at the beginning because it was the show was in the toilet and we were brought in as the new script editors. Uh, and were basically given a carte blanche to do what we wanted. Uh, Which measly pissed off Roger Law. And everyone was kind of had like greeny grey faces because they'd been working so hard and they got slammed so badly in the press. Partly because they'd, you know, hyped it to death. This has come this great new satire show to replace TW3. You know, and they did have problems with it and it was like... Uh, Bob Dylan songs and all sorts of... Two Bob Dylan songs in the first three yeah, shows. Yeah, it's just very dated because all the guys involved in it were kind of 10, 15 years uh, too old and we're doing this generation which, you know, passed. They were As, doing Macmillan and, yeah, uh, and yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, no one was interested. So going in now, it was very exciting because we were given a cop bunch and we said, right, OK, we want to throw this out, throw that out. And then kind of... Uh, the viewing figures doubled within six weeks and then there was kind of the egos started to take a, place, a huge amount of ego problems uh, on the second series and we it thought became, it'd be great uh, because we thought hey you're working with puppets we're out of ego country we're into you know yeah, got the that was a lot yeah so in the end it was not much fun you know was it was it always a lot of hard work trying to keep it um, up to date that was the fun bit, actually. Uh, we used to have a, a topical session on a Friday uh, to update the current show, and that was the most fun of the week, I think, because we, we worked all morning and uh, 
and then got drunk. <laughs> so no, that was fun. Um, the hard bit was was getting up to do the scripts, and you're working on three shows simultaneously. And uh, that's the fact that the show was actually being made in Birmingham, and the puppets were being made in London. The scripts were being written in London. And you had these kind of teams going up and down the motorway. Uh, and so everyone was just very tired and tempers got very frayed. There was one, I can't remember what, I think it was an Emmy, they won the Emmy. They won the, yeah, International Emmy. International Emmy. There was a whole thing, I'll come around at five and there's some nibbles and some champagne and we're all going to celebrate the Emmy. And it just erupted at the end of this thing, this huge mega argument. It was between, like a Mike Lee play. Yeah, John Lloyd and Roger Law just screaming at one another. <laughs> at the end, going, you fucking bastards. All this is going on. I was like, hey, congratulations, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was good because the, the show was making headlines. That was a, a, a first. And uh, that, that was interesting. We were. Uh, phoned up by journalists at home who tried to pry things out of us, and that was fun. Did you get a lot of um, satisfaction from stabbing famous people in the back? No, we, we, uh, I mean, the, I think this is the influence we had on the show. We, we, we hated that stuff. We, we thought it was like throwing chalk at the teachers. It's pathetic, frankly. I mean, we're, we're more into social observation, and, and taking the piss out of the royals is really, you know, I mean, it's so easy. Yeah. We were. The new series isn't as good as the, the previous three or four. I haven't yet been able to bring myself to watch it since we left. I mean, it's like seeing someone else go out with your wife, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I know there are a lot of talented people working on it now, and it gets, yes, good reports. Mm. So, so, when you came on to doing uh, Red Dwarf, you sent a, a script in based on what you'd done. And sort of cliche. No, we uh, we done a script the previous year called Lance Bland Newsand, which was uh, firmly rejected by Paul Jackson, um, quite rightly. In, it wasn't in, firmly rejected. No, well, he discouraged us. Uh, he wasn't sure about it. Actually, he read it, and it was because what was it? It was about an hour long, wasn't it? And it <laughs> all over the place. It just meandered all over the place. And we persuaded him to do it in the end, actually. Went for a drink with him at the Latchmere at this pub near where he lived, and he read it. And you could tell he didn't like it, but he didn't want to say he didn't like it. And at the time, we thought it was really good. And then it kind of came out during the conversation. He wasn't sure, basically, what it was about, or who the character was, or all these kind of things. <laughs> By the end of the conversation, he was like, "Oh no, no, I can see now," and that's really. I'm really quite up on it, and yeah, yeah, go away and rewrite it, and then we'll make it. But because of his reaction, we weren't then interested, because we thought, oh my God, it's no good. So we did uh, Red Wolf, and we did six weeks of uh, Spitting Image, and then went away to Wales and wrote Red Wolf in a week. And basically gave him a copy, gave John Lloyd a copy. Um, we both read it, and we both came back really quite quickly, and said, yeah, yeah, we, we want to do it. Uh, and we said, well, we sent it to John Lloyd, and he likes it, and Paul Jackson, and John, Paul likes it. And so there was kind of talk of a kind of co-production at one point. That's right. Uh, and it ended up with Paul taking it to the BBC, and the script being sent by our agent to the BBC, and they rejected it. And then Paul Jackson took it back, and they rejected it again, and took it back again, and rejected it again. Um, and sort of just time went on and on, and in the meantime, he'd done Happy Families up in Manchester, Paul Jackson, 
Um, and it was just yeah, because they have a, they had a network slot allocated to them. The BBC Manchester they have to have a a, a network uh, access to a network slot, and so Happy Families was the previous year. Um, and just before that was when we went to see they had a comedy to say, you know, can we try and persuade you to do this? Which is when the uh, he said, what's wrong with it is it hasn't got a sofa and French windows. And if uh, there was somehow there were, could be these French windows and the sofa and you pull back and you reveal that somehow we're on a spaceship and you slowly lead people into this situation where they're on a spaceship because otherwise it will freak them. Um, Mm. The BBC seems to have a built-in hatred for science fiction. I think it's TV executives in general, and uh, it is—it's one of the adages you do. You know, you don't work with children, you don't work with science fiction. Mm. Well, I mean, a lot of it is because it's very expensive, and if it's not expensive, it looks so bad, um, and they just—they can't do. In the end, I think they believe it never gets the ratings in terms of it's never going to be El Dorado. No, that's how they work, though, you know. Yeah. You know, El Dorado think, yes, yes, okay, no one can act in it, but, you know, given time, 18 million people will watch it. Where do they hide these people when they don't bring them out for meetings? I mean, considering, as you said in the meeting, I mean, the top 10 films of all time have all been science fiction, and, and the same with television, to some degree. They would argue, though, that the movie audience is different from a TV audience, and that a movie audience is basically a 14 to 24-year-old age group, uh, and those are the people who are more interested in, uh, are the people who go to movies, and equally more pe people who are more interested in science fiction. Mm. Whereas there aren't very many people who are 65, for example, who are interested in science fiction, but those are all the people who watch El Dorado, and mm. the Housewives, and blah, blah, et cetera, et cetera, which is why you, can, you get those viewing figures. Coming back to Red Dwarf, the casting is uh, interesting. How did you come about the casting? I mean, how did you get in, introduced well, to Craig Charles? We we set out to cast it, and we were absolutely convinced. Uh, we were adamant that we were going to have proper actors and RSC if possible. And uh, I don't know. We got waylaid along the way, and we wound up with a, an actor, a poet, a stand-up comedian, and a dancer. Uh, we we but we saw serious people. We saw. Alan Rickman was keen to do it, and Fred Molina was keen to do it, and uh, we just reasoned quite rightly in retrospect that they wouldn't be around for the sixth season, they'd be off in Hollywood, and uh, we wanted new fresh faces uh, who would stay around with it. I mean, Craig Charles was, a, as you said, a stand-up comedian. Did he... Uh, he was a stand-up oh, poet, actually. Yes. Did, yeah. he, did, did he... Uh, well, I saw him once. <laughs> did did he come in for the audition? Or? Mm. The, this, the story that goes around, and I'm not, I don't, we weren't privy to all of it, was that Paul Jackson, for some reason, suspected that the idea of having the cat as a black person might be uh, racist. Um, so he sent it to Craig, whose sensibilities in that area he trusted, just to say, "Is this a racist script?" And Craig says, "No, and I want to do it." <laughs> and. Uh, so I think Paul persuaded him to audition for Lister, and uh, when he came in, I mean, uh, it was 
I mean, I thought he's got no chance. I mean, really, he's completely away from the uh, list of I imagined. Uh, also, we, I'd seen him and didn't like him at all. I thought he was a really angry, winsome, yeah, yeah, winsome. And we, we'd actually, we actually had in mind the list was going to be much older. Uh, in the in the original pilot script, he was forty-two, and so he was a completely bizarre tape, but he, he was so charming, and so uh, I'm kind of imagine Christopher Lloyd, Lloyd in Taxi at the time someone who's mm. completely out of his head and didn't really know where he was You just throw the ZZ9 as down there, they're supposed to be 42, aren't you? Yes, yes. Is there any relevance to that? No, there wasn't. I hated that book. Well, I mean, that would have that the series would have been a hell of a lot different, wouldn't it? Yeah. If the guy was, if Lister was 42, what sort of series did you imagine? Well, at the time, it was kind of, um... Silent running mate Steptonson. <laughs> that was kind of what we imagined. Uh, we, were, I mean, we obviously didn't want any comparisons with Hitchhikers uh, because that was like that. I mean, that was obviously the, the worry. Um, and we, and, and and the other idea was that we 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 try and make a, a situation coming which is as strange as possible, but equally obeys all the rules in terms of situation and sets and all those kind of things. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it would have been like. Good, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you did Red Dwarf, and the, the first season was aired, and it had low, low ratings to start with. Well, that's what we will say. The very first show, actually, was third in BBC Two with 5.1 million, which is... Very, very respectable. But if you'd, if you'd been actually in fandom at the time and you were, say, at a convention bar or something, you mentioned you watched Red Dwarf. Oh, it's, right, It's like sure. saying, you know, I'm a mass murderer. So <laughs> at the beginning, you just, right. it just wasn't given credits. People went, like, you know, comedy, bah, out mm-hmm. the window. Sure. Did that upset you at all? Uh, I don't think we were aware of it, actually. No, I think, those... no, I, I think uh, we were aware that uh, science fiction people... I mean, uh, there's a tendency that the po-faced, I mean, all the uh, all the tricky people take it so terribly seriously. And and uh, there was recently a program on BBC Two. I, I take it seriously also. <laughs> also. There was recently a program on BBC Two where um, where the creator of Blake Seven or one of the writers for Blake Seven, who kind of been the creator. It wasn't Terry. He was one of the writers of said that he'd seen Red Dwarf and he, he, he liked it, but he thought it was denigrating the image of, uh, of science fiction because it was sort of making... The idea was never to do a spoof. We never wanted to do a spoof. We wanted it to be um, solid in terms of logic and, and, and to make sense in, in science fiction terms, but to be a comedy. And the first three scripts we, we did for it were uh, had very little to do with science fiction. They... We, we have two kinds of science fiction we refer to. We, the wallpaper science fiction, which is the uh, the science fiction you establish in, in the series, like Holograms and Being Three Million Years from Earth and the cat religion and all that. And then there's the hard science fiction, which is, is you know, like Justice World, it's a science fiction idea. And we didn't have any of the hard science fiction in it. We, never, we, meant, we wanted it to be accessible to, to the general people. And, um, 
but then we wrote. Uh, well, we were actually told as well to play down the science fiction by Paul. Said, uh, whatever you do, uh, he said. One, we said we got this. We were thinking of doing this thing in uh, science fiction. And we said, no, no, no. He said people hate science fiction. He said two pieces of advice: two one, don't do science fiction, and two, don't do science fiction. <laughs> And um, <clears throat> we said, well, yeah, but this is going to be character-based, you know. And I was kind of, yeah, because I've got this thing about science fiction that they don't have three-dimensional characters, you know, and of course you need that for TV and you need that for drama, else you won't survive and you can, you can survive in a novel, uh, but it won't on TV. And he said, well, what, what's your opening scene? And we said, well, it's just these two guys pushing this trolley down this corridor and it could be anywhere. And he said, well, put that in the script, put a corridor, it could be, and we said it could be in a TV studio, and he said, put that, put that, it could be in a TV studio, in a, so in the get, BBC. Yeah, when, when we look back over the pilot script now, uh, we don't have a model shot actually in the script until about it's the last... It's all played down like it's not really page. in science fiction, it's not in space really, and it's I think so it's the first direction they... Ultimate, I think, yeah. And we wrote three shows, first three shows really didn't have, really have very much to do with it at all because of this fear, and then we, it was clear what was working and what wasn't, and the science fiction was, and the, the ordinary stuff wasn't. Well, I think the first series really helped in, that, in the way you played down the science fiction side, because you got more characterization in that, especially in the, in the first episode, and the later ones with the cat religion, um, kind of the, so waiting for God, yes. um, where you, you get more info. I mean... It worked better as a, as a base for a long-running series. I think that, that's one of the reasons. And another thing we do, and is it, this is something that, that never really, that, that everybody looks at us like we, you know, from Pluto. We don't have any aliens in Red Dwarf. We don't. And we, it was a deliberate decision because we said it would force us to write different stories and to, to make it about inner space rather than um, outer space. Uh, when when you have aliens, you tend to use them as uh, as a social comment on uh, on life on Earth, and it makes it of a kind. And we decided not to do that deliberately, and it made it a hell of a lot harder to uh, sure. to come up with stories. But we thought the stories were more uh, were more different uh, from from any other science fiction. You didn't want to cut across hitchhikers, particularly in uh, Star Trek in the kind of stories we were trying to do, although I'm convinced that the next gen rips us off mercilessly. It, it, it seems like when we sit down watching them, sometimes you go, didn't I see that on Red Dwarf? And then you watch Red Dwarf and you see Star Trek the next week, you go, didn't I see that on Red Dwarf? I'm, I, yeah. The, some, of the, some of the stories seem to be incredibly Have you seen similar. The Game from season five? Yeah. I can't believe it. And uh, Clues. Yeah. They were all after. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, of we keep well, we do know that because we know guys who work on it who yeah. say, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I adore the next gen. I think I prefer it to classic Trek, actually. We won't go on to that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the cat religion, actually, did you upset any uh, religious people? No, I think this is the bonus because. I think religious people are so stupid they don't know they've been taking the piss out of them. <laughs> we had this uh, thing with the American thing. One of the scripts we submitted was The Last Day, which is, you know, it's a, it's a blatant religious uh, piss take. And, uh, and I saw the chief executive of the studio being interviewed about it, and uh, the interviewer said, will you do the religious stuff? And he said, 
Well, I don't know, and he kind of said, uh, I think if it comes up, we'll uh, we'll assess it issue by issue or something like that. And I thought, you've got the script on your desk, matey, and you haven't even spotted it, have you? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's what I think. Why were there only five episodes in season five? There weren't. There were six. What happened to the six? Uh, we were probably on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> there were six episodes. There were six screens? Yeah. It's not that much videotape. Did we miss one? This is a giveaway. Okay, must have done. Which one? Now they didn't have. Which ones do you remember? Which ones do you remember? Uh, back to reality. Yes. Uh, give me a clue. Quarantine. Quarantine, yeah. Holoship? Yeah. yeah. They started with Holoship, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, and the Inquisitor. Yeah. Terraform. Yeah. That's it, that's six. You just got a count. That's three out of Demons Holoship and Angels. one. Inquisitor two. Terraform three. Terraform three. Uh, quarantine four. Demons and Angels. Demons and Angels. But to reality. Which one was Demons and Angels? Demons and Angels is... That's where Chris Barry was suspenders. Oh, oh yes. right, yeah, the duplicated one, yeah. That was a very strange tape. Fair enough, that's a blown out one. Scrap that one, right? Um, <laughs> just uh, buggered that up for it. Good question, though. Had it been true? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it would have it been, been No doubt there would have been something in there about censorship, which yeah. unfortunately... If you hadn't produced five episodes, why would did you? I was going to get married to show stupid here. Yeah. Thank you, we're getting a first. Um, yeah, I was hoping it was going to be something like Star Trek The Next Generation, where they cut five minutes just so they don't have to show something exploding, which would pointlessly ruin the story. Um, uh, where am I? They did show it later on in another episode, anyway. Yeah. Did they? Totally, yes. yes. <laughs> which, which, which story is this? Shades of Grey. No, 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 no. no. Conspiracy. conspiracy. There is something the show where they, they, they actually shoot a thing and he explodes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right, that was cut. They cut the whole end sequence, so it makes no sense. When, he, when he's going through his dreams, flashbacks, flashbacks and everything, they actually show it. Oh, I see, I see. Oh, I haven't seen Shades of Grey. So, in the first, pa in the first yeah, instance, it looked right. In the second place, it was just gratuitous violence and they left it in. Says something about the BBC. When it came to season three, you changed the format entirely, more or less, especially with, yeah. with Mel Bibby coming on and redesigning most of the sets. Mm. Why did you do that? Uh, because we were producing it, uh, and we weren't and producing we, we the had first a pledge thing. against cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't. I mean, from the beginning, we said we don't want. Please, no grey sets. Please, no. You know, set wobbles. It must look good. This is, you know, the whole thing. It's dependent on this, uh, you know, of, of it being looking credible. Uh, <clears throat> and so when we got to be producers, we, we thought, well, right, we have an opportunity here to put these ideas into into action. And Mel was always had the reputation of being the by far the best uh, designer in Manchester. Uh, and so we, we, uh, we went for him and, and said, basically, you've got a carte blanche, because obviously... He wouldn't have done the show if it was like, oh, we can just tart this set up slightly. Mm. Uh, and um, that's, that's, that was how we wanted to take it, really. Yeah, we did write a bridging episode between seasons. Uh, we started to. 
two and three to, to make sense of it. Well, it's so boring. We just decided to put it in the roller at the beginning and, and make you, a joke you, out of it. You, you did uh, leave it. Did you write yourself into a corner at the end of season two when you had Lister giving birth? No, we, 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 we deliberately did it as a cliffhanger, like, you know, the book thing. And when we, we had planned to do, we did half write an episode called Dad where uh, Lister was going around pregnant and... Uh, and Rimmer was basically uh, looking after him. It was a very... Just didn't work. It just wasn't. Yeah. Mm. We, I thought it would work, but it just wasn't right. Most, just, uh, most people consider it a cop-out, that it, it just totally left everything behind and then sure. went straight onto a new series. Sure, I mean, that is kind of uh, a whole thing about the science fiction community, though, that is that they're absolutely obsessed with continuity. And, and so the, the fact that we've screwed them around so much <laughs> gives me no end of uh, pleasure. <laughs> I think we did have to take it rather seriously. I mean, Red Dwarf has never actually... It's made laws and then broken them almost mm. the, the following week. I mean, have yeah. you actually kept a Bible like they do on Saturday? No, we, I mean, you keep it in your head, actually, but um, if we find that a rule is, uh, is inhibiting the show, we just say, well, you know, we weigh in the balance and say, well, stuff it will Also, you look at Star Trek, I mean, Spot wasn't Spock in, in the pilot. He wasn't no. Spock no. halfway through. Sure. No, he wasn't. Right, and so you, they made the wrong... I mean, he wasn't right at the beginning, and so they changed him. And mm -hmm. he's, and he's, you know, you, you don't want us to, you know, just stick by your mistakes just for the sakes of uh, continuity. Yeah. Why did you choose more action-orientated uh, stories in, in the, from season three? Because it was a real drastic change between the first two and the third one. One was because the whole thing was pretty claustrophobic just on the ship and looked kind of, uh, we're never going to get off here and nothing's ever going to happen. And this could easily just be on a, in a prison or uh, on an oil rig. Uh, and because uh, we wanted to see what would happen, you know, if we did, if we could land occasionally on a planet or... They wanted to tell more exciting stories. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Red Dwarf supposedly got 2,000 decks. Have you ever been tempted to go wandering around at decks more? Sure, but it's just a very expensive way of doing it mm, yeah. because you need those sets and there can't be a huge, great uh, difference between what the sets are at the you know, the top and clearly here we are in some warehouse. There's, there's one more example of you just throwing things in when, in, a, in a meltdown when uh, Crichton just comes wandering up from the science deck with, yeah. the, with the dimension yeah. hopper. Yeah. Yeah. And you just go, where the hell did that come from? Yeah. Did, you, did you plan... To just throw things in now and again from these decks. No, it was, um, you know, when you when you, I, I'm sure they did they, they did this in, in Star Trek and in Star Trek the next year as well. When you when you design the original idea, you you hope it's going to have enough. You throw enough plates in the air that some of them are going to come down and and, and it's going to uh, provide you with enough stories. And some of the ideas you think of at the beginning don't prove as fruitful as you thought. I mean the. The big. Do you remember in uh, in in the, the next ship pilot the the big thing about separating the saucer section of the ship, mm. and they kind of use that once every season. You think why? <laughs> I mean, it, it sounded like it might be a good idea. It just didn't, you know. It was like any in the Borg episode when they're separating. You can see why. No, just like you, this big saucer because thing shot you at. can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's supposedly the captain's yacht on there as well, which can oh, get shot at as well in a later episode. So there you go. Um, there are some times when they should use that. I think and they don't. Mm. Sure, a couple of people use that. Right, we'll go to the American one. You recently did the, the pilot in the US. Um, how involved were you with that? 
We'll forget what you said earlier today. Well, um, we'd had offers for years from uh, America, um, and they usually were of the ilk where they say, uh, hey, we really love the idea, does it have to be set on a spaceship? <laughs> and they they usually uh, they come over and, 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 and take us out for extravagant lunches and say, we really think the American audiences won't relate to a dead guy. And <laughs> the cat's... <laughs> the cat's too weird. And, uh, and that stuff, and uh, so we just... You know, send them, send them back on on the Boeing, really. Um, Thanks for the lunch, Boeing. Uh, but Universal came along, and uh, simultaneously, NBCP, uh, the production arm of NBC, uh, the network, made very tantalising offers, saying we we came over and proved that they they believed in the integrity of the show and that they uh, they wanted to do it to justice, and uh, eventually we opted for. Uh, Universal's bid because because they had attached to it a showrunner called Linwood Boomer, who was apparently uh, uh, sanctioned by James Brooks, who was a hero of ours, uh, to do the TV version of Big, the sitcom. And we saw the, the pilot episode, which was turned down by the network. Uh, but it was really really was quite good, um, and we thought, well. Why hold out? Let's 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 see what he makes of it. And we we had all kinds of safeguards that we'd we'd get vetoes, and we didn't really believe we'd get them. But uh, we thought, oh well, you know, let's let's go with it. And we were we were actually uh, called creative consultants because they're very uh, touchy about what you called over there. And we expected to go over there this January, in fact, and um, and see it being made, uh, and just basically say. Um, you know, uh, I think Mister's hair should be parted on the left. You know, <laughs> um, creative consultants generally means they nick your idea and just credit you. Does it? Usually. Well, no. They were they were very uh, they were very deferential, and uh, in fact, we got we, we got off the, the plane in in Hollywood and uh, we started working. The instant we uh, hit the hotel, the guy came over and uh, we were doing rewrites all week, and he was working us like a dog, and we had jet lag. It was horrible, and. Uh, and we had a lot of input at script level, but not as much as we'd like because uh, it was all rewriting lines and making things funnier. And we said there are fundamental flaws here we don't uh, agree with. And uh, and uh, eventually we wrote a large proportion of the script and then it came to recording and it was quite plain. I mean, Red Wolf is a very difficult TV show to make um, in terms of the uh, effects and... You do need experience in, in shooting science fiction. There are there are different rules that apply to shooting science fiction. Uh, you can't use wide shots, for instance, if you look at Aliens, Alien. Uh, there is not a single shot of people's feet because the instant you see it's a set, you've blown it. And so the the rule is shoot it as tight as you can and uh, and cut as quick as you can and, and all this stuff and. Uh, the guy who was shooting it, I think, six, uh, ex directing experience came from Night Court, and he was kind of shooting Night Court in space, and we were saying, you know, no, light it nice, you know, there's no need just to turn all the lights on, turn some of them off. And uh, when he did the split screen, did you see the pilot show? Yeah. When he did the split screen, there's like, like over in Europe, 
uh, the other half of the split, and you can you can drive a battalion of tanks through the middle, and you say no that. The fun with splits is you cheat the splits and you try and get as close as you can and you, people can't see how you did it. And they they uh, had enough on their plates just trying to uh, point the cameras at the actors and then... Uh, <laughs> You've done the split on the, the middle. Yeah, that's what I just said. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't say that. In fact, one of the, the assistant director on, on, on the uh, thing we were talking about, we had a technical meeting just before we were going to camera block and, uh, and we were going around saying things like, you realise, you know, trying, you're trying to be polite and you're also trying to make sure they do it right. Um, saying you do realise you have to lock the camera off for the split and sort of put armed guards around it so people don't knock the camera. And uh, she said, oh no, we were going to use two cameras to do the split screen. And I was thinking, oh my God, they've got a whole new technology here that I know nothing about. <laughs> what a wonderful idea this, this is using. And, she's, and I said, well, how do you do that? I don't understand. Explain to me. She said, well, like when we have someone in the Washington office and we have someone in Russia, we use two different cameras and splits. So I don't know if she thought we were going to put a big blue line no, down the like, So it's like the news. So it's literally a mark down the middle of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are in Moscow. Here we are in... So um, they, they simply had no experience of, of shooting any special effects or anything like that. And... Uh, so we were, on the day of the recording, it was just a complete nightmare. Technically, I mean, extraordinary, yeah. Because there was a lot of comedy people who hadn't, just were completely out of depth. And, the, of course, they'd, they'd gone along with the dictum that um, they wanted to play down the science fiction and therefore you didn't have to know anything about the science fiction in order to play it down. Mm. And it's the, the truth is, you, you do if you want to sell, I mean, you can't go on and do the most elaborate science fiction plot as the pilot show and expect people to, to tune in. You, you have to bring people along with you. Um, but it's, it's like, you know, when somebody plays the piano badly, they play the piano badly. If you want to have someone playing the piano badly, they have to be able to play the piano to know how to play it badly. And uh, they, they knew nothing about science fiction and didn't think it mattered. I mean, uh, in, in the in the pilot script, when uh, Lister picks up uh, Rimmer's light beam and throws it in the air, the light beam is described as a gizmo, and that's that's when the chills started going up my spine, and I thought this has no chance. When you talk about December, you seem really quite excited about it. Oh, are you going to be involved? Yeah, we 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 really expected to. Uh, well, we were. I mean, it's just the guy chose not to listen to us, and, uh, and that's why he got fired. I mean. We've heard, we've heard that a lot of states have English Red Dwarf. I mean, there, there have been uh, mentions. Yeah, Bridget Red Dwarf, whatever. Sorry. And uh, they've actually had Red Dwarf Weekend, but they've just sent... Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why did they go to try and make an American version of it? Why? Volume. Yeah. Uh, because we make six shows a year and they need 26. Mm. So it can be syndicated, so... The thing is that it has to go to syndication in, in America, a, a TV show, uh, to make its money back or to make profit. And uh, syndication requires upwards of 80 shows, usually around 100. And you really need to achieve that number of shows in as short a time as possible. So, so what happens, like Universal make, make a show for NBC, and NBC, if the show costs, say, a million a show, NBC will pay them $600,000 to make the show. And so they run at a loss of $400,000 per show. per show they make. So to get their money back, they have to make 70 shows. 
when they've made 70 shares, then they've made whatever that loss is, 70 times 400,000. They need to get that back. And then what happens is it's syndicated, which means it goes on all the cable channels, all the little networks all over America forever, and is constantly making money back. It makes billions and billions and billions, but otherwise they make a loss. And so it's a disaster to make 20 or 30 shows in America if it doesn't go to syndication because you've lost 30 times whatever it is, $400,000. They never get that money back. So it's kind of like one or the other. It's fantastic uh, wealth and success or, you know, dreadful, you know, uh, huge losses. We're looking forward to cutting in on some of that wealth. <clears throat> in the end, it, so little of it happens and it's such a pipe dream. I mean, it was really quite offensive to us, all the people going, as we said in there, we're going to be rich, we're going to be rich, hey, we're going to be rich, they're going to be so rich. You think, that's just so obscene, it's about whether the show is any good, mm. you know. Uh, in the end, you just can't go in with, oh, well, let's be really excited because of how rich we're going to be. It's mm. just no way, and ultimately that's what, what kind of what happened. The, the, <clears> the depressing <throat> thing is, you, we went into the, in Universal, they have uh, all the executives collecting this... Uh, a 15 story tall black tower and it literally is a shiny black tower and they call it the the black tower and, you, and we, we used to go up there for our for our briefings on the 12th floor and they had a, a a billboard with all the the network's output and because the network's put out the same shows throughout the year except the summer there's a, there's a small hiatus in summer but basically for 40 weeks a year they are they are transmitting cheers in the same slot and the Cosby show in the same slot and they'll do two new ones and a repeat and then two new ones and a repeat. So the the uh, there are four networks basically, uh, if you count Fox and you have to now. Um, and there are only so many slots. There are like twenty comedy slots. And unless Cheese is gonna stop being made, you know, there are only nineteen comedy slots. And uh, so the, the people are vying for very small slices of a pie, and the chances of failure are enormous. Ninety-eight percent of new pilots, this is the shows that are actually made, uh, actually sustain, uh, actually sustain the series. So the failure rate is enormous. As you said, the, the American version of half hour is twenty-two minutes, and trying to slot a, what was essentially a half-hour story. Because it kept most of, the, it, yeah. most of the story, but there's some new stuff added as mm, well. Sure. So, I mean, that, that cut down on what you could actually show. Yeah. yeah. It's very weird, because they seem to be trying to make a, a different show, but the same show. Like, here's the same show. We we don't like these bits of it, so we'll do it different. But they totally changed the show. But you still got the old format, which doesn't mm. didn't seem to fit. It, it's a, a thing I, I call the, the no philosophy, where um, you, you, you do... You don't like something, so you just don't do that. You don't think of a new idea, you just, we're not going to use H's. We don't have another idea, we'll use red spots on the head. Anything, yeah. Anything, but not H's. And uh, we'd always wanted to make room of black and white in the, uh, in the TV show. And, um, it's just too tricky and expensive to do. It. Mm, yeah, it yeah. But it's too tricky to do it. Uh, on a, on a weekly basis, and but you know they look like candy in space. With the, <laughs> torch you the battery boy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, to try and make at least a successful guy, you know, there was that chance was in love with him. Just, I was really totally out of the way because yeah. the whole point of Red Dwarf was like just yeah. lie on his own with no human beings and uh, no women. Yeah. 
phone him up and tell him. <clears throat> and they thought, oh, yes, but no one will... I mean, because oh, the other thing was they wanted it in prime time. Uh, and so they go, ah, oh, right, so now women will be interested in this show, and so we've got to get some girls in. So women some are babes, they call yeah, them babes. Yeah, babes. They call them babes. <laughs> TNA, they call it. And they, I swear to God, they talk in these terms. Just, you know... Let's I mean, cast some TNA. It's quite, quite offensive saying, oh yeah, let's have a, uh, a woman evolved from a cat so we can have a woman in a cat suit looking sexy. Hmm. What was going to happen? I mean, in the promo video, you changed the character by then of cat to a woman. What would have happened to the pilot at that stage? Oh, that, oh, that, that was. Then. Yeah, that was not going to be transmitted. No. Mm. We always said to them that it was a dumb idea to to do the pilot story and you should just do a typical show and, and let's see if people like it because, you know, yes, people are vaguely interested in, in where it all came from, but it's much more interesting Especially to do for a America. funny, exciting show. It should be up and running. And then you can do the, the pilot, as it were, in episode sort of five or six, but get the thing... Because it's a, an atypical episode in that not until the end do you get your cast sort of assembled. It was a kind of a perverse episode when we wrote it anyway. We... We, we, our idea was to cast real big boys. We wanted like Sean Connery as the captain, and uh, and the idea was we kill him off halfway through, and you're left with these four guys you don't know, and that yeah, was the joke. It was yeah. a joke. It was a poorly conceived <laughs> joke. <but it's> <laughs> and uh, and they just copied that too. Mm. Speaking of copying, the sets for the American sets were almost identical to the British well, ones. Yeah. yeah, it was. I tell you, going around with jet lag uh, and worked out of your nuts. And listening to the same dialogue from American voices on the same set was a very unreal experience. It really was. I kept on expecting Rod Serling to <laughs> to step out from behind with a cigarette. Yeah. Thing. Rod also, Grant. Also, the fact that Rimmer was played by a guy called Chris Eichmann and Lister was played by a guy called Craig Bierko. So you got Craig and Chris going, and then you see Robert there. And you think, oh, we're back in England, and and, 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 and then you go, oh, I can't cope with this. I'm gonna have a cup of coffee, and I went to have a cup of coffee, and the Mars bars were called Milky Ways, and the Milky Ways were called Mars bars. Interesting. Oh, it's just a <laughs> They're taking the piss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They think Milky Way's a Mars bar. They were all very excited and you know, said it really needs something you know like this over here, and were very very. I mean, men in grey suits were weeping because they really thought they would ex NBC would take it. And <coughs> we would be running a. Uh, NBC time. was so enthusiastic. Mm. Uh, that they were saying, oh, we, we're going to take it, it's so exciting, and then they just turned around and, and did it. would have been if they'd done it properly. Well, yeah, I mean, but if, if ultimately we'd had a crap, we'd have been able to change, you know... It was getting in, it was trick, yeah. 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 So what's the position now? Well, the position now is that NBC passed, CBS said yes, series of six, uh, and the two guys who were going to be showrunning that show... Um, we didn't really believe... We were sympathetic to the idea. Yeah, or experienced enough to do it. And so we thought, rather than the whole thing being screwed up again and it getting a reputation for this thing that just can't work, yeah. we'll, we'll kibosh it early and... and uh, come Wait till they're all fired, basically. <coughs> and, and, do, and do a movie, basically, in a, in a couple of years. But I wouldn't be shocked if uh, Universal come up with... Uh, yeah. Dudes in space. Yeah, you know. sure. No, I'll be that. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rimmer. 
Do you think the series would have died anyway if it had actually gone into production? No, I think it would have yeah, made it. Have, yeah, it made it. All we needed was six shows, it would have made it. Even with that cast? Yeah. Yeah. Craig Bianco was good. Yeah, Craig Bianco would have been a star. Robert would have been a mega star. We would have always changed rumour. <coughs> uh, Terry Farrell, actually, although it doesn't really come across in the promo, was a very, very funny comedian. She was really, really funny. Uh, I wasn't crazy about Holly, but, um, you know, wouldn't have, not offensive. Certainly not over there where anyone who's picked with an English accent, they just fall around her. Just think that's very, very funny for some reason. When we were doing the, the casting, when we were trying to recast Rimmer, uh, the number of actors who came in and did such pony British accents uh, to try and, I don't know, because they thought it was so curious. They, a lot of them treat you like you're from Moldavia, you know, as the two writers from Moldavia. It's like the guy who did the voice of, uh, what's it called? Um, Is that what you were looking for? In the cartoon, uh, Roger Rabbit. The, guy, the man who is the voice of Roger Rabbit. They said he's auditioning. We went, all right, right, and he came in and he sat there and he started to say, "Hi, how are you? How's it going? How long you've been in town?" All this, and his accent was just so extraordinary. It was like a cross between Dick Van Dyke uh, doing his Cockney accent, and I thought, "Oh, the poor guy, he's got a speech impediment. There's something wrong with him." And and the the American uh, casting one was going, "Oh wow, oh nee, oh wow, that's just so terrific." And it turns out he was doing what he thought was a very, very good British accent. And then suddenly he started to speak in an American accent. It's like, oh, you're not an idiot. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's extraordinary. And we were, our offices were, were within view of the Alfred Hitchcock Theatre, which I thought was amazing. So do you, learn, do you know more about the American TV system so that next time you can... Oh, very much so, yeah. I'm so sure. that there won't be a next time. <laughs> no, 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 not true. I mean, we did learn a hell of a lot. I mean, it's... Uh, Ultimately, we were always caught as kind of right. You've got to come over now. It's got to be done in four days. Sorry, we can't give you the time. Sorry, we can't give you a studio. Sorry, we can't give you any kind of facilities. I mean, that's the thing about that promo. Uh, I mean, the lighting and that set where you've got the cat and Lister, it actually looks, I mean, in my opinion, better than the pilot, which cost a million and a half. Yeah. And that cost $30,000. Well, yeah, and, and yeah, properly, and but done right. Was that product <coughs> ever going to be used on television? They may transmit it. They sometimes during the summer, they they transmit pilots that didn't make it. But it's a bit of a, a lost cause exercise for them because if it wasn't transmitted, it's because they didn't think people aren't going to like it. So I'm just wondering because the opening uh, titles included a lot of the well, stuff. Was that just pilfered to, yeah. to save cost? Mm. The yeah. opening titles? Yes. Because yeah. they just can be asked to take out uh, Daddy John Jules and that really. Yeah, for sure. Background. Well, the model shots and stuff are so expensive as well. Mm. Um, they actually did strike a deal with the Beeb to copy to the, use the, to model use the model shots, shots, but not obviously to use the model shots with, with our cast in them. Mm. Or it's like the whole Holly thing as well, whether we're using our cast just to. because that's all they had, really. What are your future plans for British Red Dwarf? I mean, will we get to see Lister with Kachansky? Will he get back to Earth? And if so, what was old Lister doing on board Red Dwarf into future records? Watch the series and find out. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to give you, anything. No, you, yeah, there will certainly be something very similar to that, I think, in season six. Yeah. Right. Um, are you going to do any more books? You mentioned you've got one. Yes. Yeah, we've got a three book deal with Penguin. So there will certainly be one more, at least one more Red Dwarf and uh, another science fiction 
born sort of the year after. Mm. Mm. Any tentative titles for that one? Well, we were going to uh, call, the, call the third book backwards, and uh, unfortunately Martin Amis wrote Time's Arrow, the same publisher. Bastards. <laughs> and... Uh, it's basically, you know, the idea is straight from Amis, the same idea as the, as the TV series. So we kind of... If we, even though we were there first, if we do it, because of that, I think it'll look a bit like we were there second, even though that's not the case. So, uh, I'm a Martin Amis that. fan as well, which makes it all the more complex. Uh, do you like the, the comic that's currently out, this magazine? I think it needs a lot of work, really. Uh, and I understand that all that work that it needs is currently going on. It's not the thing I'm most proud of in my life, no. Was it officially san sanctioned by the BBC? <coughs> it was officially sanctioned by, by us. us. Yes. Yeah. So you actually own the full rights to it. It's not owned also by PJP Productions, right? No, 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 no. No, we don't own the full rights. So it's, we, we've sanctioned it, and so they can use logos and various other things, and they have access to. And my butch is very good. He lets us uh, have our input to it. And I'm sure. Well, yeah, we've started that very recently. Hmm. Right, finish. Have you got any other questions? Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask um, what you thought of the convention so far. How it's terrific, it? really. Very yeah, much. Well, yeah. Yeah. Are you it's surprised? A, it's, it's actually my first SF convention. It's not. You've been to one before, haven't you? Yeah. I thought everyone would have Spock ears on. Things, I don't know. <laughs> Look, I haven't been to conventions before. Yeah. Yeah. This is an eight. Are you telling me they don't? Sure. No, they, they, well, they don't. Really yeah, I've been more, so more than one. Yeah. <laughs> Despite my question, yeah. <laughs> the cut out. Yeah. What, what about the feedback that you've got from people really interested in the show? How's that? No surprises, really. It's it's been consistent feedback to uh, put them back on the ship, give Holly a bigger part. I mean, nothing I've heard today's been a surprise, although it's it's confirmed other. Three scripts are written. Uh, we'll probably have a decision in September, uh, and if we do, it'll probably go on in about 12 months from from that time, and it'll be a whole new look. I think it'll be quite gothic and Batman-y. So it's going to be more like a sort of um, Twilight Zone. No, well, really. not really. No, it's, it's kind of closer to the look of Blade Runner in a future city with kind of strange, weird tales. So really, kind of, it's not really anything to do with Twilight Zone, but in a shorthand version, when you go to executives and you go, comedy Twilight Zone, they go, ah, ah great. Love it. So since we've, they've gone, ah, oh, great, we've, they're kind of like the training wheels. We've lost that, and it's really nothing to do with Twilight Zone at all, really, now. Can change the title? Yeah, and that's why the original title was called The UEU Dimension, which when it was a comedy Twilight Zone. Yeah, the title will change. Any ideas of a, of a title? No. 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 Um. What did you think of uh, Series 6 when you saw it, Series 5 rather, when you saw it finally on, on the completed version? Well, A, I always personally feel that the current series is the best. Um, B, I thought, I thought the look of it was very good indeed. And 
thought the stories were strong. It's my favourite series. I thought some of the, the ideas seemed a bit claustrophobic in half an hour, but you didn't have time to set things up really before you got into the action. Mm. There, there, is a, there is a problem with the half-hour format, though. It's hard to tell the tale you'd like to tell, but... Right, but is that because they, this, the stories aren't starting off quietly and building, whereas starting in the middle of the... Because that was something I think, we I think, like, purposely particularly decided. Particularly in Hollership, I thought that um, suddenly oh. it was over this... Yeah. Basically, you said, if we've got this ship and it's a holographic ship and rumours like a real person is holographic ship, fine. And we went, oh, what? Mm. Hang on a second, because we, we, yeah. we needed to get used to the idea yeah. before we could have all the fun. Sure. So while you was having all the fun, we weren't having so much fun, because we weren't right. used Still to the idea. And that's, and that's science fiction people you're talking about. You're not talking about <laughs> yeah, well, people the, who... Yeah, well, in that show in particular, it recorded a, a, over 38 minutes worth yeah. the assembly. So it was actually, yeah... So it was almost a 50-minute show, if we'd have... Well, yeah, if, yeah. You, if, you, if you do a Star Trek, you'd have people walking down corridors for yeah. that particular reason. <laughs> <laughs> Easily, it's a double effort. Yeah. <laughs> do you prefer um, watching your, the, the finished item on the television or watching it being made? Or is it more nerve-wracking watching it being made? Well, if we had nothing to do with it, it being edited, we, we could answer that question, but because we're editing it, we stick to the back teeth a bit by the time it goes on TV. You said that a lot of the, uh, the programmes actually change between you write them and then the cast get hold of them and it changes because of their interpretation. It's not so much them, their interpretation, it's just a, it's a, a process where you write a script and people read it and give you one kind of feedback and it might be hey that's a terrific story now they're not looking at it in terms of actually between page 10 and page 17 it's actually not very funny or there's a speech that that actor actually won't deliver well ever even though you retake it six times and that's badly shot and that model shot doesn't work and for some reason that no one knows it's badly edited and, and it lags there so it's just all this because in, in the end it's 120 130 people making a show yeah don't know what it's going to be like in the end so, I mean, you're generally quite happy with what No, no, never happy. No. no. Always miserable. No. Miserable. I mean, the only reason we keep doing it is because we think, well, maybe we'll get an all right one eventually. Is, when, you, when you're writing the book, you know, the performances are perfect, the special effects happen exactly at the right time, and... Uh, Much and easier writing books. vast and... Yeah. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Absolutely easy peasy compared to the TV series. Would you prefer to write, write books? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. I don't know why uh, we do the TV series. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. Because it's there. Work, work together. Because I mean, if you have a sort of inspiration at two in the morning, it's not, it's not the same. Whenever. You have to sort of get together. And no, we have, I mean, we're not allowed to have inspiration at two. No, we certainly never ever have inspiration. <laughs> at two. No, we just you know sit around in a room and talk and and work it out and then then write it up. We do it all together. We absolutely we don't. I mean, we have ideas. So, which was your favourite series? Little of that. Um. And you're asking, I think I have more like favourite episodes within the series, not right, the right, than a favourite series, right. series. Right, 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 right. I mean, I thought Back to Reality was the, be the best thing that, that you've done in Red Dwarf. That was right. incredible. When we saw that, we, we fell about laughing like the whole family. We thought that was really. Right. Were you at all tempted to end the series then? It would have been a wonderful ending. 
It would have, yeah. Well, I think they'd have probably got stoned alive. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it, yeah. some people would have stoned you alive, but then again, it was such a wonderful idea. That I think everybody would have been so pleased with the idea as an ending. We, we actually handed that script in to the production team first, and Paul Jackson read it and said... Uh, Said it was clearly he actually it was set as show one and he thought that we'd just simply change the entire uh, setup and, the, and the, the the whole situation and just we were just going to write a series about you know Colonel Sebastian Lowe and <laughs> Wayne Dibley without telling without anyone, telling anyone. <laughs> set designers anything <laughs> and he was quite sanguine about it so he, he thought it should go out as the first show, and certainly for a long time we thought it would go out as the first show, but it was, it was clearly better at the end. Yeah. It was a possible ending, yeah. It's a bit too close to uh, Bobby Ewing shipping out of the show. I don't think we could have lived with it. Have you got any plans to actually finish it? Because most series just go on and on then stop. They don't actually finish. It's always irritating when that happens. The, the problem is knowing knowing when, it, when to finish it. It's... Uh, People were, I mean, the cast were all saying around series two, well, this will be the last series and uh, you don't want to do any more, it's going to be like the young ones and all. What happens with Doctor Who, though? Does that have a, that doesn't really have a, could never really have an end, could it? Never really had a beginning, though, did it? No, well. No, it didn't, no. It just sort of came in halfway yeah. through and then you wouldn't right. around. So you have no plans to finish it within the whole I think the well, books actually, will certainly finish. Sure, yeah, the books will definitely finish. And I actually like the, the end of Better Than Life very much. I always thought that would have been a really good end if we'd have ever thought of it. But to end the whole thing. Do you actually write on, on the basis of all that made you laugh? Do you actually suggest things about laughter to each other or just. Oh, yeah, sometimes, sure, yeah. Sure, but then other things can be, <laughs> other things can be a complete fluke. I mean, like, for example, in Polymorph, <coughs> uh, we, we wanted this vacuum house somewhere on Crichton, and I remember a conversation with Howard Burton going, where do you want the, this vacuum house thing? And uh, Robert said, apparently Robert wants it on his groinal bits, and don't you think that's a bit cheap? And he was like, um, oh, yeah, but it's going to be so funny. And, and I, didn't actually, I, was, I didn't actually make a decision. I just walked away from it because something else happened, and, and it was there. It was on his groinal thing. And then actually during the scene, we completely forgotten about it, that he, was, he had it on. So that scene where he's got this huge, great vacuum cleaner hose and he's pulling Lister's underpants off and you, it looks like it's this... It's a total fluke. Well, you don't see all that through rehearsals. It's just, you know, two actors in jeans. Doing all that. And so when you see this... This huge great vacuum house. I mean, I, I was, we saw it the first time, was actually on the night in front of the audience, and they couldn't hear one another. They couldn't hear any dialogue, that's why they're shouting, because the laughs were so loud. Do you feel constrained by actually having to film a lot in front of a studio audience? Sometimes. But I, I think it's good having an audience there because, uh, A, you know what's working and what isn't. And B gives the actors feedback, so they, you know, can milk a laugh and, and can time it better. And uh, the stuff we shoot generally at the beginning of the series on film, well, not on film, but on OB, uh, always tends to be more slowly paced and uh, and less laugh intensive than the stuff in the studio. And uh, if it's not working in the studio, you soon you lose your lunch through your trousers, and then it, it inspires you. To improve it. Has anything really totally died that you've had to go back and reshoot? 
Oh yeah, I mean, um, high and low, or uh, renamed Demons and Angels, was just terrible. Really, really deeply hopeless. And we went back uh, the day after the uh, end of the series party and just said, okay, we've got the crew and cast back and said, right, we're just going to basically shoot as much of this show again as possible. And we've got to finish it. Uh, what was it, six? Yeah, whatever. And we'll shoot as much of this show as we can. We know no one knows the lines. We know it hasn't been rehearsed. We know it was re um, shot six weeks before. And we'll just go for it and see how much we can get in the can. And how much of that? We did about... Over half. Yeah, about half. And it was like, can we shoot this scene? Uh, no, we haven't got time to shoot, reshoot this scene, so I'll have to leave that in. But we can go to, you know, we can shoot that scene if we don't do this. So it was just complete cut and rewrites going on, you know, being passed over and racing down onto the studio <laughs> and going, OK, here are the new lines, stick it to his head, read the lines. <laughs> Just madness. Did you put Chris Barry in that costume again for throwing the wobbly or was that planned? <laughs> uh, no, no, that was written. That was one of the first scripts written. No, that was just. <laughs> no, that was, yeah, that was written that one. So, with all this other stuff that you've been doing, um, I mean, the next series is going to be delayed because you normally film it in November time. Yeah, it's, it's going to probably go out in March. My series is going to go out in March. Middle of March, yeah. So, you'll be filming it in Filming it, uh, John. So it's still going to be very cold for the actors if they go out on the Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Silly, so wanted a question? Oh, yes. Um, if I was to ask you to name your top ten favourite films or books, what would they be? Oh my god, this is Desert Island. This right <laughs> in. Right at the end. Oh my god. I love Blade Runner. I think Blade Runner is absolutely fantastic. I like King Lear. <laughs> King Lear, the what, the Russian movie? King Lear, the, no, King Lear, the play by Shakespeare. Um, it's a Wonderful Life. Mm. King's Row, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. These are my movies. Catch on the Rye, Catch 22. <laughs> top five favourite uh, The first Derek Lacks book about Woody Allen. William Goldman's Adventures in the String Trade. Fantastic. It's too hard, it's too... With no time. Here's <laughs> <laughs> my alternative silly one question. How much curry do you think Craig Charles wrote on set to give him the, give him the chance? And is, does it make him dangerous to work with on set? Well, actually, he doesn't like curry, does he? Oh, I don't know, because I'm just basically... We went down to see DNA, and he was eating it between oh, the two. Oh, yeah. He, he will eat anything. Yeah, he will. <laughs> Well, he eats props if it's I mean, the thing food. is, everybody's on stage, they're really sweating. We see him just after they've all gone in no. the shower, and he's just sitting there eating curry on set. And we're thinking, yeah. And it's awful for continuity when you're <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking that. No meal left, oh. Yeah. <laughs>